You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On the podcast this week, we talk to Adam Brock about how to create and sustain healthy organizations and groups. Before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Robert G., Anne F., Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., David and Sandy S., Eric of Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Johnny S., Dutch Girl, Mary H., Stephen T., Brad and Stacy, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. When I wrote a post lamenting the difficulties of forming and sustaining groups, I got an email from Adam Brock, author of Change Here Now, a book which uses architect Christopher Alexander's idea of a pattern language to find solutions to the many challenges in front of us. A large section of the book develops a pattern language for what Adam calls nurtured networks. From his bio, Adam Brock is a Denver-based facilitator, entrepreneur, and designer. His work lies at the intersection of urban agriculture, sustainable business, and social change. He is a certified permaculture designer and a co-chair of Denver's Sustainable Food Policy Council. Adam currently serves as Director of Social Enterprise at Joining Vision and Action, Denver's premier consulting firm for social change organizations. And now my conversation with Adam Brock. Uh, Adam, uh, thank you for joining us here. And uh, you're in Denver. I, I thought maybe actually people might not know who you are. Maybe you should say a little something about your background and where you're from and, and what you do. Yeah, you bet. And and first of all, thanks, Eric, for, for inviting me to join you. It's uh, always a pleasure uh, to, to be on a podcast like this. I've been uh, enjoying your books and, and blog for a while now, so it's good to, to connect this way. But yeah, my background is, um, you know, I was born and raised here in Denver um, and grew up not at all interested in sustainability or uh, permaculture or any of those kinds of things. Um, but ironically enough, it was when I was going to college uh, out in New York City that I started learning about uh, food systems and uh, then took a semester-long sustainable design program. And so that kind of set me on this permaculture path. Um, and, you know, I, I was traveling around after graduating and looking at all these permaculture farms and realizing that there's so many great solutions out there um, for making our world not just sustainable but regenerative. Um, and I was like, if, if this stuff has been around for, for decades, if not longer, why is it not, um, why is it not everywhere? And, and I started to see that the challenges weren't technical. It wasn't, it wasn't that we didn't have the technology. It was that uh, there were very kind of practical social things getting in the way. You know, sometimes people like to say uh, growing food is the easy part, but getting people to get along is, is, the, is the real challenge. And I started to see that it was, you know, so many great farmers who, who couldn't manage interns or so many uh, really amazing, beautiful uh, community-based solutions that couldn't find funding to do what they needed to do and so would kind of fold after a couple years. And so I started to say, how could these permaculture principles apply uh, not just to growing food and to, you know, appropriate technology and things like that, but also to our social interactions and uh, then I, I pretty quickly had the really good fortune of getting to uh, take that question 
and apply it in starting a nonprofit here in Denver, where I moved back to after college. Um, and there was a basically an abandoned old greenhouse in the middle of this food desert, low-income immigrant community. And uh, I had the opportunity to, to take this greenhouse and renovate it and work hand-in-hand -hand with neighbors and turn it into a nonprofit that was all about food production, food distribution, and food education that I kind of co-directed for about five, six years. And uh, so that nonprofit, uh, you know, is still running, still thriving, but I stepped back from it a few years ago to kind of take the things that I had learned from that process and, um, and share it with other people. And so that led me uh, to where we are today of, uh, you know, my book, Change Here Now, came out about a year ago, and now I do kind of uh, training and consulting for groups all across the country around applying ecological principles to making social systems work better. And Adam, you saw a blog post that I wrote, which is how we met, uh, kind of uh, expressing some frustrations that I've had with group formation and group management. And that blog post actually came out of a conversation I had with a friend in which we were kind of going over all the, the problems that we've had with groups that that will start out with a really good and worthwhile idea. And then actually the most common thing seems to be that they just sort of dissipate. And um, I mentioned in the blog post too, that I, you know, I, I don't want to blame this on other people because I've been, I'm a part of that problem too, of, of ghosting the group of not, of not following through on ideas. And so you reached out to me with, your book, Change Here Now, which you just mentioned, that has um, actually um, a kind of pattern language for, as you call it, organizations that live. So maybe we could break that down a little bit, uh, your book, your ideas in the book, like what is a pattern language, for instance, and then maybe get into some of the kind of typical problems with group formation and, and how you would um, kind of shepherd or guide groups out of those problems. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so yeah, first, uh, this, this you know, phrase pattern language, some people are familiar with it, but a lot of people, it, it sounds just kind of weird and, and esoteric. Um, and it's, it's actually, the funny thing is it's, it's something our brains are trained to do is to see in pattern and think in pattern and, and solve problems based on patterns that we've encountered in the past. Um, and it's just kind of putting a fancy name on it, just like permaculture is a fancy name for things that many people and cultures have done for thousands of years. Um, but so, um, you know, in, in brief terms, a pattern language is a set of kind of best practices or archetypes for solutions within a given field of expertise. So the idea is that, uh, you know, whether we're talking about uh, architecture, that was where the first kind of so-called pattern language came out of, or... Well, it was Chris Christopher Alexander, right, the, the amazing right. architect. Yeah, so, sorry. Go yep. ahead. Go ahead, Adam. Right, so, right, Christopher Alexander kind of came up with the, with this concept of a pattern language. He named it, and, and his was all about the built environment, but then other people took, uh, took it into software development. So now coders often use pattern languages, and, and so it, it doesn't matter the field. The idea is that... Uh, whatever field you work in or, or live in, there's uh, challenges, the same kinds of challenges that come up time and time again. And they might vary in the nuances or the details, but when you encounter those challenges, you can apply you know, the same kinds of solutions to those challenges. Um, and uh, so a pattern language is, is kind of this library of solutions, and, and it's not just a list, but it's actually more of a web 
um, where these these solutions are all interconnected and they they kind of build off of each other and some are kind of overarching and some are very uh, discreet and and small but you you kind of create this ever evolving list of solutions that nest within each other um, that as uh, someone who is a problem solver you can uh, kind of refer to and and they kind of help you from having to reinvent the wheel every time you encounter a new situation um, so you know, again, like you mentioned, my book has a section called Organizations That Live. It's all about uh, the thing that you wrote that blog post about, that, you know, we so much of what we do um, is in groups, whether uh, it's, you know, living with a bunch of roommates or, uh, you know, certainly our jobs. We, we usually collaborate uh, with people in groups um, or, you know, if we do activism work or volunteer work, um, all of that is in groups. And those groups uh, often work in very similar ways and, and encounter the same struggles. So uh, that section of the book is an attempt to document what are some of the solutions to challenges that groups commonly face. Yeah, maybe we could start looking at some of those problems. Uh, the one I, I mentioned first is not necessarily the, the worst problem, but it, I think it's common, a lot of people will recognize it, is a group starts and then it's, it's just kind of peters out for a set of, very you know, for varying reasons. What would you say about that problem? Yeah, so that's you're right. That's something that I've encountered many times, and, and I'm sure most folks have uh, from time to time in their lives. Um, and I think you know that's a symptom that that could come from a number of different reasons, right? Um, right. It could it could be that uh, the that there's just not enough enthusiasm in the group. There's no clear leader, um, and so people are are feeling kind of aimless. It could be that um, maybe there is a leader, but their vision isn't something that, that everybody in the group can, can kind of rally around. Um, but in any case, you know, usually when, when there's a group like that, it's, it's a somewhat informal group. Um, and, and that I call, in the book, I call that a network, where there's no kind of clear lines of authority, you know, as opposed to, say, like a business, where there's a clear you know, uh, I'm the manager and I oversee these people and they oversee those people. Um, that would be more of a, a hierarchy structure. And, and in the book, I kind of talk about hierarchies and networks as this kind of yin and yang of groups. And they both have different pros and cons. But one of the cons of this network group of the kind that can so often peter out is that because there's no clear leader, at least at first, everybody's kind of afraid to, like, uh, set any rules or boundaries. Um, and so nobody, uh, often, nobody takes initiative. Um, the, there's, there ends up being some kind of unspoken rules and, and you know, the, these kind of power dynamics start to work their way in, but they work their way in slyly. Um, and so the kind of overarching solution, the overarching pattern in, in my book is what I call nurtured networks. So rather than letting a network just kind of, you know, take its own meandering course, which often ends in this petering out, um, at the very beginning, when, when that group first gets together, uh, you have a conversation that says, okay, what are our, our goals here, and, and are we all really on the same page, and uh, what are our norms of this specific group, you know, what, what behavior is okay and what's not okay, Who's, who, what kind of people do we want to be in this group, and who are the people that, that really, you know, for whatever reason don't make sense to be in the group, how big do we want it to get, you know, just all of those kind of ground rules that... Um, start to establish this kind of common basis of understanding of what, what is the identity of this group? What is the microculture that we're trying to create here? Um, so rather than it, it just kind of being created willy-nilly, 
um, we're actually nurturing it. We're, we're crafting it. You're setting up a framework, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're creating the, the conditions under which this group can thrive. So some specific examples, maybe. Let's say we've got a small group, uh, and, and this inevitably comes up, is, is of course, how, how does that small group make decisions? What kind of decision-making structure should we have? And it's, it's funny, when I mention these things, and I think this is a generational thing, I think older people like me immediately go to Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm wondering if, if you were setting up a you know, small group, I don't know, eight to ten people, what sorts of, of leadership models would you suggest and what sorts of decision-making techniques would you, would you suggest? Yeah, yeah, I think there's so many options to choose from. And you're right that I think, I, I don't even know if it is a generational thing, but I think it's just a default in our culture that we have this Robert's Rules of Order. And, and even if people don't even know what that is, they've probably experienced it, right, where the person puts forward a motion and someone else seconds the motion. Right. And then everybody in favor of the motion says I, right? Um, yep. And it, it's basically, it's, it's a, it's a, a kind of procedural, very... Uh, formal version of majority voting and and majority is what we're used to it's how our our politics uh work and it's it's how most decisions in most organizations get made and that's certainly you know there's there are good reasons sometimes to go with that you know if 51 percent agree then it's a decision but there's a lot of other options out there too so you know i think the the kind of opposite uh or uh, a different point in that spectrum is consensus um, and consensus, you know, is another one of those things that people hear a lot, but don't necessarily know the, the formal definition. There's consensus doesn't necessarily mean everybody is unanimous. It's not like everybody agrees, but uh, everybody uh, consents to a certain thing going forward, knowing that they've had the chance to share uh, their concerns and hesitations. Um, so there's a whole set of rules around consensus process that were first um, developed by uh, actually Native Americans uh, in, in what's now New England, and then were adopted by Quakers in the 19th century, and then later taken on by lots of activists in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, you know, it, it's a whole process of someone puts forward a proposal, um, people discuss the proposal, uh, talk about what they're concerned about, their objections, and then uh, there's a whole kind of formal voting where hopefully by the end, if you've done that discussion well, Nobody blocks it, and, and one block, unlike a uh, majority, one block could, uh, could make the proposal not move forward. So if, you know, even if there's one person out of those eight that doesn't like the proposal, it's not going to happen. So needless to say, consensus often takes a lot more time than Robert's Rules, and, and it can actually become pretty unwieldy beyond, you know, 10, 20 people. But with a smaller group, it can be a really great way of getting buy-in from everybody, having everybody feel like they're invested in it, and also examining all of the pros and cons. You know, maybe that 49% that would be kind of overruled in a typical majority situation, maybe they have some really valid concerns that if they were really talked out, would, would modify that decision in a way that makes it better for everybody and better for the group as a whole. So, you know, there's that formal kind of consensus process. Um, but again, sometimes that can take longer. You don't need to make every single decision via consensus. And so there's ways of kind of delegating to subgroups, right? So maybe this team of two or three people, we're just going to let you decide all of the decisions around this certain kind of thing that the group has to do. Um, and this other team, uh, you know, you can decide these things. 
And then if there's a really big decision, you can bring it to the whole group and we'll decide whether that's via majority or consensus. I have to admit not having a lot of experience with consensus, but I know that one of the objections is that, uh, as you said, someone can block uh, emotion. So if you have someone who's a difficult personality, let's say, and and how would you deal with, with, with that, with, with stopping that person from just simply blocking everything and, and dragging out the process? Right, right. So I think... Um, Again, like ideally in a group, by the time you actually get to the vote, um, you're, everybody feels heard enough and everybody has had their chance to say what they need to say and, and you've modified the proposal enough to address those concerns that uh, there isn't someone who makes a block. So even if they don't feel good about it, they're like, well, I, I've, I've said what I need to say and you've, you've addressed it to the extent that I realize you can. So blocks, you know, in a well-run consensus situation, which, of course, they're not always well-run, blocks actually very rarely happen um, because a block is a sign of something going wrong in that process. What, what could happen, you know, is it, it could also come down to who is in this group, right? So earlier we were talking about creating the boundaries of, of who makes sense to be in the group and who doesn't. If a group has poor boundaries and someone enters the group who maybe has just a, a different set of goals or... Um, has a different agenda or is committed in a different way than, than the other people in the group, then that could set up a situation where uh, even if you go through a lot of that consensus process, someone's always going to be unhappy. You know, I was, when with my work in this nonprofit I mentioned, uh, it's called The Grow House, I was involved in a lot of um, community listening sessions, right, where uh, the people from the city uh, were going into our community and and under the guys of saying, we want to hear your feedback so that we can make better decisions from the city planning perspective. Um, but it was kind of clear that they didn't really want to hear the feedback. They were just doing it because they were compelled to. There was a law that they had to. And so, you know, that's an example of a situation where you can set up um, just through the, the boundaries of who is this group and what are we doing, the, the potential for conflict. Um, and so there might be that person, you know, that, that you mentioned, Eric, who even if the city is really trying, someone just feels like they're approaching it in bad faith and says, you know, I don't trust what you're doing. I, I want to block what you're doing. And so if you, if you had had a consensus vote, they don't have trust in the group. And, and ultimately, trust is really vital to making any group uh, perform well. Right. Well, I think there's a con there's a kind of spectrum of groups, right? There's there's groups for which you know, say like a private company where I hire people, so I very carefully curated who's in it. But then there's also groups for which uh, that are open to anyone by their very nature, uh, community mm -hmm. groups, that kind of thing. So how would you suggest a different form of leadership, essentially, for those different types of groups, say consensus for one? Um, what would be an alternative to consensus for, say, a group that, that's totally open where you might have a, a conflict that, that's kind of built right. into it? Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think the, the example of, yeah, kind of these municipal groups where it might be, you know, on a neighborhood scale, <laughs> Um, you know, community gardens are a classic example, um, but there's plenty of other ones where um, uh, it's, yeah, people, maybe it's about a zoning issue or maybe it's a neighborhood association, right, where it's, it's just anybody who lives in this community who, you know, you may or may not get along, you may or may not have the same values or, or ideologies, 
um, but you're you're here around a table having to make decisions. Right. Um, and so, yeah, regardless of whether consensus is appropriate, I think um, it's really valuable. A few key things are really valuable. One, to, to have uh, someone who's a facilitator, um, and that could be someone who's part of that group, or it could be a third party. If it's someone who's part of the group, it makes sense for that role to shift so that facilitator doesn't accrue uh, power over time. Um, but you have someone who the facilitator just kind of keeps an eye on the on the agenda, on the schedule, keeps things moving. And part of the job of that facilitator is to really make sure that everybody's voice is heard. So again, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, just by sharing their voice that uh, everything's going to turn out just fine um, because some people might have some kind of deep intractable conflict. But uh, I think at the bare minimum, uh, what's necessary for, for healthy groups is for everybody to at least feel like they have a place in that group and that they're recognized. And so hearing everybody out, and then if there is a kind of controversial opinion voiced, um, then you know the facilitator can be the person that says, okay, so this is something that, that we haven't heard yet, um, and that might you know, seem to be at odds with other things we're talking about. Who else feels similarly? Or who else wants to talk about that? Um, and just kind of creating creating this space for an open dialogue about these issues, because I think oftentimes what you see is uh, if there's a dissenter, if there's someone who's clearly upset or, or angry, you know, we're, we're, we're such a conflict-averse species sometimes, um, and that we can, we can just want to, like, not want to have to deal with it because it's kind of awkward, that we'll just suppress that. And sometimes that can make that dissenting voice feel even more frustrated because then they're not being here heard but by kind of putting this stuff out into the open you know that that's this pattern that i call skilled facilitation is the person who who's able to negotiate and work through that conflict um another pattern i talk about in the book is called nemawashi which is uh this it's a japanese word that actually comes from gardening it's about transplanting and how a transplanted plant is kind of droopy and then over time it perks back up but it's a metaphor for how groups um, often have to go through conflict in order to, to work really well. So they start, they're really excited, then they go through this process of kind of feeling each other out. Well, who is this person really, and, and who's on my team, and who's not? And then the conflict emerges, and, and hopefully it, it, it happens in a healthy way. And then once that conflict is dealt with, then people are like, okay, now I see that you have my back, and that even if we don't agree on everything, we're all in it for the same big big reasons, and then that allows people to say, okay, let's, now we can really work together. Um, it's in social psychology, that's called forming, norming, storming, and performing. Those are, yeah, those are kind of two big patterns of the skilled facilitation and this kind of nemawashi process. I probably should have asked this first, but there's a, there's a bigger problem in our culture, which is a kind of hyper-individualism, a consumer capitalist kind of stance that is in itself, very averse to group forming. I mean, so many people say to me this phrase, I'm not a joiner, as if that's a good thing. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's one of the things that keeps me awake at night, to be honest with you, is, is, this, is this stance in our culture and this inability to form groups, uh, cohesive groups. I mean, I've seen at the neighborhood levels, just horrendous, you know, the neighborhood meetings here uh, just break down instantly. We won't even go into online stuff. It's just awful. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, 
I don't know. I, I, this is I guess more of a statement than a question, but I, I don't know what how how do we deal with with that in 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 the culture itself? That very deep seated uh, distrust of groups. Yeah, no, you're 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 right on, and in, in acknowledging that is kind of at the root of a lot of these challenges, right? And and even before my book gets to this whole part about organizations that live, one of the very first patterns talks about. Um, you know, this word that we use so often, community, and what does community actually mean, right? Because we talk about like, oh, I'm part of this community of people that all lives in this neighborhood, or I'm part of this shared community of interest. But but I kind of like the definition of a community as being um, a, a group of people that actually need each other, uh, people who need to rely on each other to meet uh, you know, needs of, of food or shelter or meaning or justice. Um, and if you look at it through that lens, we've kind of gone through uh, multiple generations of society of uh, trying to break those bonds of need, right? Where, where mutual interdependence used to be the norm, but now, you know, the neighbor next door to me doesn't need to know my name to go about their daily life. I don't need to know who has grown my food to eat well. I don't need to know the name of uh, the person at the bank teller because those interactions can all be done online, right? So right. it's kind of one by one taking these things that used to bring us together in these kind of shared communities of mutual obligation. And because, like you say, America is such an individualist uh, society in so many ways, uh, you know, so many of our interactions and, and more and more in almost an accelerating way seem to be uh, just things that we can do on our own. And so many people live their lives so solo or just with their, their core nuclear family. Um, and while on a certain level, you know, that feels like freedom, right? Because now I don't have to talk to someone at the grocery checkout line if I'm having a bad day. I can order anything I want online without having to go to the store. In so many other ways, uh, it disempowers us. And, and I think, you know, this epidemic of loneliness is actually at the root of a lot of the mental illness we see, the, the addiction, the rising rates of, you know, opioids, for example. Right. I think a lot can be traced back to this disconnection from each other. Right. So what do we do about that, Adam? Solve the right. problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly don't, don't have all the answers, but, but I, I, I will say the book, a lot of this, this, the patterns in the book are about how do we create the conditions where we can uh, need each other again. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, some of it gets down to, to economic things of uh, what I call heirloom currencies, so, uh, you know, the dollars are, are one form of currency that's used for almost everything in our lives these days. And they're certainly useful for a lot of transactions, but we can create other uh, mini systems, whether they look like dollars or, you know, Bitcoin or, or uh, even just barter, where uh, we can uh, create these bonds of mutual obligation and reciprocation, creating, uh, you know, opportunities to... Um, uh, to bring people together around volunteer issues immediately in their community. You know, there's a lot uh, kind of in the end of my book that talk, talks about uh, our own processes of, of self-awareness and self-care and, and how we choose our vocation and, um, and how we relate to our neighbors. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which if we use that mindset of how can I create these uh, bonds with my community rather than looking for ways to, to cut them. Um, that even if it means I'm going to have to 
engage in conflict and, and talk to someone who doesn't think or, or act like me, uh, in the long run, that's actually going to be healthier for me and, and healthier for our community as a whole. Speaking of conflict, what part do you think that the uh, online um, community building forms in this? I mean, of course, Mark Zuckerberg likes to talk about that that his ultimate goal is community, which I have very serious doubts about, but that's what he says. Um, what what role does um, both a healthy role and a maybe unhealthy role does um, our online lives play in uh, forming face-to-face community? Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a, a relevant question these days um, because, you know, again, for so many of us, so much of our lives and so much of our, our quote-unquote community is is online. And, and you know, I, I read a book a while back that really helped me frame this in a good way. It's by a, a guy named John Thakara. He's, he's kind of a self-described futurist who writes a lot about the intersection of technology and sustainability. And, and the way he put it is that the internet... Uh, and other technological solutions can kind of be the the scaffolding of community, but they can never be the bricks, which is to say that that they can help create the right conditions for people to find each other and for them to connect with each other. But that connection ultimately has to move from a strictly technological one to uh, uh, in the flesh one for that community to really be vital and nourishing in the long run. Um, and, and that, that connection all too often doesn't get made. I mean, partly there's practical reasons, right? We might form communities with people halfway across the globe. I mean, even you and I, we're talking across time zones over a thousand miles, and, and that's a great thing. But, you know, to, 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 to really create these um, interdependent communities and to, to reduce that isolation and, and to restore so much of uh, the bonds that have been cut... We, we still need to get together in person. And so the internet can be a great facilitator of that. Um, you know, I, I love things like, um, you know, there's a social network called Nextdoor that's a neighborhood-by-neighborhood social network. I think that's a great example of how the internet can be used for uh, me to be able to meet my neighbors online and then set up a situation where we all get together at a coffee shop and, and talk about something that interests us all and maybe even solve a local problem. So to me, I, I think it's a very powerful tool that, like many other powerful tools over history, uh, can be used for, for ill or for good. There's an interesting problem, though, with Nextdoor, I got to say, which is that early on in my own neighborhood, it was very, it was a good thing. It, it actually led to a neighbor of mine putting on monthly potlucks that everyone's invited to. That's been a really, really positive and great thing. The site, however, has sort of devolved into trolling now. I mean, it's it, like so many other social media platforms. It's become this, unfortunately, this racism. There's just this back and forth nastiness on it that uh, seems to be endemic with the online world. And I'm wondering if you have suggestions for dealing with that kind of trolling that happens in a group. I'll, I have another example, actually. I, I was on the board of the Bike Coalition here. And this is a long time ago, but we had a we had a discussion board. Ultimately, that discussion board had to be taken down because the trolling got so bad. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think it's a great example of that that same kind of pattern of nurtured networks and and creating the right boundaries and and guidelines for discourse. Um, I mean, I think the thing about online boards and comment threads is that you know you you're you're basically anonymous, um, and so that anonymity 
uh, I think often creates the, the incentives for people to kind of bring out the worst and to, um, for, you know, you can't understand people from their tone of voice or from their emotions or their body language when they're saying something. So things can easily be misinterpreted. And so it, it, it's kind of just this uh, perfect storm of uh, misanthropy. So I think, yeah, you're right, where, where next door fails, and it certainly does in a lot of ways, is that um, it doesn't bring people face-to-face -face quickly enough or, or at all, right? There's certainly, I think, many of the uses of next door. You still don't have to meet your neighbor. For all you care, they, they could be in Thailand because you're never going to see them. You're, you're never going to have to... Uh, face them. I, I mean, I guess what, what we're kind of dancing around here is, is accountability, right? So there's no, there's nobody that's going to hold me accountable on next door. If I post a racist comment, if I post something nasty in, in response to something that, that someone said, but if I had to see them every day, um, or if there was some kind of, you know, moderator on next door, um, maybe one moderator assigned to each neighborhood who it was their responsibility to kind of to kind of facilitate the those discussions and keep them civil and and to ideally kind of uh, create conditions for those people who are commenting online to come together and have those discussions. I think we'd see a lot less of that because there would be more of that accountability. Of course, it doesn't meet their business model because they can't afford to have moderators like that. That's my crankiness. And sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but then it's sort of like, yeah. well, then we should start our own next door. But next door is already next door. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? So yeah. that that's my frustration with that. But yes, like, uh, some kind of moderation. I, you know, I, To be honest with you, I had a better experience with Meetup. Uh, uh -huh. It's not perfect, but at least I remember signing up for it and they said, this is for face-to-face -face meeting. You're not just going to use this to, to have an online forum, which I thought was a nice, you know, kind of stance on their part. And I had a generally better experience with that, that platform. Yeah, I think Meetup is another great example where it's an online tool that is designed to, to as quickly as possible, get people meeting in the flesh. Um, and but you know I, I think it's a, it's true what you brought up Eric that as long as the the kind of carrots and sticks are set up in such a way that uh, these online platforms are incentivized to to maximize their revenue at the expense of whatever social good they happen to be doing then then yeah they're they're not necessarily going to create the right conditions for civil dialogue they're not going to create the right conditions for. Uh, the, the best content to rise to the top, they're just going to create the conditions for the most inflammatory content or the things that, that holds people's eyes for the longest or right. the things that gets the most likes or clicks. And so, you know, it, it's, it goes deeper certainly than, um, than just the platform itself. But, but I think there's ways to, to at least mitigate some of those challenges on a kind of community by community or platform by platform level. Do you have some favorite organizations that you think set a good example for, for group formation, either small groups or large groups? Yeah, let's see. Um, so I, I uh, am involved in a group uh, here locally in Denver called the Denver Permaculture Guild. Um, and I think they've done a really good job of uh, kind of really going, they, they have an online platform. There's you know a Facebook group that has, I think, 1,500, 1,600 members on it. Um, but then they also have in-person uh, meetings, and at those meetings, they do a really good job of uh, welcoming newcomers while also respecting the the time and effort put in by the people who have, have been going to them for a long time. Uh, they have skilled facilitation. 
So I think, you know, that's one example that I've seen, um, you know, in, in touring and talking about uh, my book. Uh, I've been to several communities across the country um, that I've been really impressed with the way they facilitate uh, meetings, whether it's using consensus itself or kind of modified versions of it that speed up the process. So, yeah, there's, there's some really innovative, interesting stuff uh, happening out there. And, and I think uh, for those folks that are just kind of less familiar with it, I think it's helpful to if you can find a group uh, or even an online training in, in those kind of techniques um, to just observe how other people do it and then just kind of practice it. That's the best way to do it is to say, all right, we're going to try a different decision-making technique and let's see how it goes, this, this meeting. Everybody bear with me. I'm going to try it out. And, you know, some people might stumble a little bit. Um, but in the process, uh, you'll learn how empowering it can be to, to work with groups in a different way and, and how it might kind of shift the, the energy in a room when, um, when some of these different techniques are used. I think that's the, the big lesson I had from reading your work is that uh, if I were going to do any other thing, whatever that is, gardening or uh, woodworking or something, I would train myself on how to do it. And for some reason with group formation, I think, well, I can just do that on my own. I don't need to seek out help from someone like you who maybe who has more experience, who who's done it before. So maybe that's the takeaway is that you need, you need an atom and that there are other atoms in this world, right, that, that can help There's with the facilitation. Uh, I mean, certainly right. group yeah. facilitation is a lot of what you do, right? It is. It is. I think facilitation is, is it the key to, to this uh, work. And, and, you know, facilitation is a practice in itself, uh, like you say, that, that takes a lot of, you know, I've, I've been facilitating now for almost 10 years of groups huge and groups tiny. And, and every time is totally different, and I learn something from every process. Um, but yeah, th this work, you know, I think w when we say the word technology, we usually think of high tech or, or even just, you know, uh, mechanical and engineering type stuff. But, but these things are technologies as well. Consensus process is a technology. Robert's Rules of Order is a technology. And I think it's helpful to think about it in those terms because, like you say, Eric, like any technology, it takes a little bit of time to read the user's manual and <laughs> understand right. how it works and, and how to make sure it doesn't burn you and, and those kinds of things. Do you think there are personalities that make better leaders than other personalities, or is it something that one can learn? I think there's a lot of different kinds of personalities. I think almost any personality can, can embody leadership, um, but obviously every personality is going to do it differently. Um, one of the things I talk about in this Organizations That Live section is what I call uh, human polycultures. Um, so, you know, folks that might be familiar with permaculture or other gardening know that a polyculture is, is in, in that context, a group of plants that all work together. So, you know, the classic example is corn, beans, and squash, right, where the corn uh, grows tall and needs a lot of nutrients, and the beans are a nitrogen fixer. They add the nutrients, but they need that tall corn stalk to vine around, and then the squash acts as a uh, weed barrier and, and ground cover. And so they're all helping each other out. Um, and so in groups, you can kind of think about a group like a human polyculture where each person in that group is playing a different role and they're kind of, the, the things that they offer to the group and the things the need, they need from the group can balance each other out if, if that is done in an intentional way. And the, the ideal, the way I like to see it is, you know, some people talk about leaderless groups I, I flip that on its head and I say, we want leaderful groups. Mm. We want everybody in the group to, to feel like they are a leader in their own way. 
Um, and then the, the nominal leader, if there is one, the facilitator or the, the manager, whoever it is, is really just the person whose job it is to bring out the leader and everybody else. Well, Adam, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, certainly uh, how to find your book, how to find your website. What are you up to these days, too? And are you speaking anywhere? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I often uh, travel across the country uh, doing different workshops and talks. I mean, uh, I, I love to, as interactive as possible, because this this work is so much about how we work together. So, you know, I could talk about it for hours, but really where it gets fun is is when I work with groups around it. So yeah, I, uh, all of that can be found as well as the book itself on my website, which is adambrock.me, A-D-A-M-B-R-O-C-K dot M-E. And you can order the book there. You can uh, shoot me an email um, and you can see what events I have going on here locally in Denver and across the country. And we should say again, you mentioned this before, there's a lot more to the book than just uh, group organization. It's, 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 in fact, each of the topics you sent me could easily be a, a multi-hour uh, podcast discussion. There's definitely definitely a lot there and, and always happy to, uh, to dive in with folks uh, at whichever topic they're most interested in. We'll have to have you back talk about economics. There you go. Okay. Adam, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Eric. That was Adam Brock. You can find him and his book, Change Here Now, at adambrock.me. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. Thank you again to our many supporters. Our closing theme is by Dr. Frankenstein. And thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.